Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. All right, we are in Leviticus 20 tonight, and we will pick up right where we left off last week. Um, and uh, I just pray we'll get through this. And I, we just did uh, Ephesians last night, and I had the same number of pages and went way, way longer than I thought. So I think there's something about doing this online that I, I can't see people like nodding off or losing focus. So I just keep going. Um, and But I hope this is good. I was excited to do this study this week. We're in Leviticus 20. The context is the Levitical sacrificial system and the priesthood are the beginning of Leviticus. There's some laws for the people uh, and we get definitions of clean and unclean and what foods to eat and what foods not to eat. That's an early Leviticus. And then right in the middle, we get this idea of the day of atonement and God outlines what that looks like. That there are ways to atone for all of these things that are being listed that we can do wrong. Uh, after chapter 16, there's a definition of the sins of the heart and this expert expectation that with atonement that we do things out of a free will or out of the love of our heart for God. And then chapter 19 kind of sums that all up and says God wants people that are a righteous and a loving people. So what we do in Leviticus 20 is we're going to shift gears a little bit into civic law or rules that as the priesthood, they're also going to serve. We already saw they served kind of as the diet experts and they serve as the medical people in the community, but they're also going to serve as the judges in the community or people that judge the Jewish people. So God lists all the things that we shouldn't do. And then we're going to see now when they do these things, here's what you're going to do. So there's this kind of way to do judging fairly in, in chapter 20. So there's a number of practices that get listed that we've seen so far that are not necessarily in and of themselves right or wrong, like eating shellfish. Um, and then we've seen some things that God puts a tag on and says, don't do this. It's not something I want. It's, it's wicked or it's an abomination or it's um, setting yourself against me. Um, and in all of these things, God's basically saying, I don't want you to look like pagans. I want you to be something different. God wants his people to be set apart. And that's Leviticus so far. Why does he want people set apart? Because Israel should stand out amongst the nations of the world. So he is, um, he's going to show people how to do it. So, um, verse one, let's just dig in. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, again, you shall say to the children of Israel, whoever of the children of Israel or of the strangers who dwell in Israel, who gives any of his descendants to Molech shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. So there are a series of different punishments that are going to be given with this. We've already read about Moloch. Um, Moloch is this horrible pagan Canaanite god. There are other gods that, that do the same thing as Moloch by different names with different cultures. 
Um, but these are the civic courts. And we know we're moving into the civic courts because it says all who dwell in Israel. So anyone who lives in the land is going to fall under this law. And regardless of whether or not you are an, a Hebrew, you should not be worshiping Molech um, or to do that. The kill or put to death is muth. Um, it's a civic execution. It's not murder. It's not the word for murder. It's the word for putting something down um, quickly, fast, um, uh, mercifully, um, because they shouldn't be in the country. And of course, when in verse 3 it says, I will set my face against that man and will cut him off from his people because he's given some of his descendants to Molech to defile my sanctuary and profane my holy name. So karath, cut off, means to remove or destroy the connection to the body. So when you have people that are doing, uh, you know, worshiping Molech again was the primary practice of Molech worship was to give children or infants into the hands of this fiery hot metal statue and it would kill them. Um, and God's saying he doesn't want to see that happen. Um, so to grant or to give something uh, is to um, be against something in op oppositions because it says he is... Um, I will set my face against that man um, is to pick a fight or make an enemy of someone. If someone wants to worship other gods, basically God says, I'm going to give them over to that. So if you want to worship other gods, you don't have to be part of my people. And I'm going to cut you off, and that's the natural consequence of those things. Verse 4. I kind of did the Moloch stuff before. I don't want to keep doing it. I can say, well, let me say this. For each of these civic laws, as we go through the rest of the Old Testament, we're going to see that they get broken. And then each of these situations give God validation for what he does with Israel because they start to worship these gods. So the worship of Moloch we see from Ahaz and Manasseh, both of them are going to give children to the statue or, to, uh, or, or sacrifice their children to Moloch. Um, and we see that that is going to be something God doesn't want to see happening. Um, and he will punish Israel for what's going on there. So he's emphatic about doing this. He's going to absolutely do it when we see that he, he sets his face against someone. And if the people, verse 4, of the land should in any way hide their eyes from the man when he gives some of his descendants to Moloch and they do not kill him, then I will set my face against that man and against his family and I will cut him off from his people, all who prostitute themselves with him to commit harlotry with Moloch. This is the interesting part that gets added on from when we read about it before. So it's not just the people who give their children to Moloch, it's the people that watch it happen, or people that are kind of incidental participators. So if you tune into the, the Moloch worship on TV and you watch it, you're as guilty as the people that are doing it. So there's a third punishment here for people who help. It's not to be cut off and it's not to be killed. When people that look the other way when it's happening becomes God's enemy, right? He will set his face against that person too. So this isn't a civic punishment, but it's something God will do to a civic population and he'll take care of it himself. Notice in verses four and five, the humans aren't supposed to do anything for punishment. God says, I'll take care of that myself and he will do that. So he doesn't have a command for people to deal with the kind of the secondary people dealing with Moloch. Moloch's sacrifices, when they did them, there was always an audience. These were big festivals, big kind of happenings in those towns. Um, so it would be an entire society of people that would do it. 
And in Israel, when you see Moloch worship, there will be a small group of people that go out and do these sacrifices together. So you have a conflict between the, the people of the world around Israel and the Israelites themselves. Verse 4, it says, the people of the land should, um, which implies that there might be a time when the Jewish people are either not in the land or they'll be diasporic around the world. And it's basically saying that when he sets up this law, he sets it up to work for both when they're in the promised land and when they're taken off to battle land. God will still act regardless of who the legal or governmental authority is in that country. So there's an accountability to it. I thought it was interesting, and I think last time we talked about Molech, this is a tough issue because if you look at sacrificing children, or today we would call that an abortion here, um, there's a context for this that's clearly a religious practice or ceremony. You have to have a certain worldview in order to kill children. And that worldview is one that God's not okay with because he's not okay with human sacrifice. Also notice here that it says the primary responsibility goes to the man, when you look that up, it's not, a lot of times when you see man or humankind in, in the Bible, it's a general term, so it could mean man or woman. And in this case, it doesn't. It actually means the male half of the species. Um, so it says when a man does this, the man is held accountable. And if the people of the land should hide in any way from the eyes from the man who's doing it, when he gives some of his descendants to Moloch, they do not kill him, then I will set my face against that man and his family and will cut off his people. So the families get involved, but it seems that God's holding the men of these families accountable for what's going on. So out of curiosity, I started looking up some of the statistics around um, what this looks like or how where the culpability is when it comes to this. In the United States alone, and I think these are just things to give us some context, 18% of all pregnancies our um, women have to are considering abortion or not having abortion. So 13.5 out of a thousand women have had abortions in America, which amounts to at least in 2017, 862,000 children were killed in abortion uh, uh, practices, and those are the ones that got reported. So USA Today has multiple answers for some of these other pieces. Of those 862,000 abortions, 1% of them were, 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 it was a reported rape that caused it. And I know Danny brought this up before. Less than half a percent um, were due to incense, or incest, not incense. Then it looked at, they do surveys um, with women that have had abortions, and they ask, why did you have the abortion? Of all the abortions, and they could answer multiple answers, so these don't add up to 100, they add up to more than 100. 74% of women that had abortions says that they didn't want that change of life quite yet. 48% of all abortions say they didn't want to be a single mother. And then 73% said they just can't afford a child at this time. Even worst case scenario, if you just take that single mother piece, then you start to ask, well, if it takes two people to make a baby and half of all abortions, so 400,000 of them, are because the guy isn't sticking around, and won't be there to be a father to that child, then perhaps the Bible's right by holding the male accountable in a lot of these situations. And the woman isn't somebody God's setting his face against. And I thought that was kind of an interesting thing on this. The woman should have, if, if that's such a concern for women that there won't be a guy around to help it or they can't afford to raise a child on their own, that's 48% and 73% of abortions. Really, if guys just 
followed through on their practices, you could eliminate half the abortions in this country tomorrow. And you think, where's the moral obligation for the guys that are running around impregnating people, uh, women in particular, and <laughs> where are they and why aren't they part of this? Sexual sin then becomes related by God to this idea of adultery. Notice that he says harlotry, right? This idea that you're going to go run around with Moloch and you're going to serve other gods and God connects that to this idea of, of harlotry or prostitution. And that idea that when we do things, we have responsibility for those things is huge in this point. So if there is something lovely and beautiful and pure and holy about worshiping God, likewise, if there's something lovely and pure and beautiful about a marriage and that, that, that connection that God wants to make that models our connection to him, that when we cheat on that, when we don't keep our oaths, when we fall away from it, that becomes so distasteful to God that we're doing things that aren't honoring our behavior and we don't keep our oaths. So if we say we're going to follow God or we say we're going to love somebody, we love them. So you look at issues like this. It's interesting God starts with this one when it comes to civic law because to do it, it has to be done in public in a way. There has to be other people involved when you give your child a Moloch. So God starts with that, and it's the first civic law that he really lays out saying don't do this, don't be responsible for it, and he holds primarily men accountable for this situation even being a situation. So if a woman gets pregnant, they should have a guy that's going to stick around. They should have a guy that's going to support financially that child, right? There, sh there should be a situation where the change in life is a, a glorious and a wonderful welcome thing, not a horrible thing. And I think it's interesting that when God sets his law out, he asks us to be true or to be faithful and he connects it to that idea. He keeps going with the prostitute um, theme in verse 6. And the person who turns to mediums or familiar spirits to prostitute himself with them, I will set my face against that person and cut him off from his people. So if you want to live in the nation of Israel, you don't go running around to mediums and familiar spirits. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God, and you shall keep my statutes and perform them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. God really doesn't like Moloch, one of those Canaanite gods, and he also doesn't like when his people turn to any other spirits. So he's kind of got Moloch singled out, but this verse 6 really includes anything. A medium is somebody who would talk to um, the dead or call up the spirits of dead people, um, and, a, and a familiar spirit would be somebody who just talks directly to angels or demons or spirits that are out there. Um, and they're not talking to God, who is who, who humans should be talking to. Um, notice that on this one in verse 7, God puts a positive reason in the middle of the civic law. Keep these statutes, guard them, treasure them, and hold them dear. And he asks the people to do that. Verse 7, consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. There's a spiritual law here, and we shouldn't miss it. God does the anointing, he does the saving, he does the sanctifying, but God does expect action from those people he's redeemed. If you're going to call Yahweh your God, if you're going to set yourself apart as a servant of the living God, you should be different in some way. And let's start being different by not going to see the fortune teller. And that's one way to just stand out and not be different. 
the thing that we set apart or the you shall keep my statutes and perform them, the thing that we, when it says to keep your statutes, it implies that those are your trophies. Those are the things that you're proud of. So when everyone's going to go do something and you say, I'm, I'm not going to participate that, there has to be something that you're proud of too. It's not the things we say no to, it's the things we hold to because we're set apart and we actually take pride in them. Perform them, it says, to keep them and to perform them. So we don't just read it, we do it. We see that all over the place. James, don't be hearers of the word only, but be doers of the word. So we will something and then we do it. So God asks something of his people right in the middle of these things. It, while he says, don't do these things, he says, do this. Notice that God promises sanctification if we keep and do these statutes. He does all the work, which is interesting. All we got to do is kind of do what he tells us to do and not do what he tells us to do. And he does everything else. And in some ways, if consecrating ourselves and being holy is what God asks, that's a bonus in and of itself. But when it says, I am the Lord, your God, that's the fulfillment of all this stuff. There's nothing in this world that's better than following the Lord. Verse nine, for everyone who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his mother or his father. His blood shall be upon him. This, is, this sounds pretty harsh. And this is where people have a hard time with the Old Testament. But let's break it down. The word curse is kalal. To curse something is to take something lightly, to make it trifling, to dishonor or disregard people. So when you curse your parents, it's not that you call them a bad name when you're an upset five-year-old. It's that you are, as a grown adult, making them trifling or meaningless or not taking them seriously. So there's a generational respect under the civic law. You're supposed to respect or take care of or give weight to your parents. You're supposed to honor them. So when we don't honor them, it's the opposite of that is to curse them. So you give weight, you give reverence, you give importance to your parents, and essentially you take care of them even in their old age. So this is a law for adults. It could be understand in this context it could also be understood as a ritual curse, um, but it's not quite that word in the Hebrew. So uh, it really is the idea of adding weight to your parents or to making them light or taking them lightly. Um, I want to go to Deuteronomy 21, which expands on this idea of not cursing parents. Um, and Deuteronomy kind of plays out this law in a little longer text. If a man has have a stubborn and a rebellious son, which will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and that when they have chastened him, he doesn't listen to them, he's taking them lightly, then his father and his mother lay hold of him and bring him out to the elders of the city and into the city gates. This is how this operates when this happens. And they shall say to the elders of the city, this is our son, he is stubborn and rebellious and he will not obey our voice. He's a glutton and a drunkard or they make whatever accusation. And all the men of his city shall stone him with stones that he dies, so that you shall put evil away from among you, uh, and all Israel shall hear and fear. The point of these harsh laws is so that people don't break them. And in America, we have some laws that have the death penalty. The point of the death penalty is hopefully so that people don't do those things or they restrain from doing those things. And frankly, if parents have a natural inclination to love their children, it would take a lot for parents to bring their kids to the city gate. But we're in that situation, and if they're drunkards, they're clearly old enough to be drinking, right? Or at least in the United States, it'd be 21 plus. This is commonly understood as an age of adults 
actions towards parents when parents are trying to lead or guide their adult children and they're, they are just rejecting their following. This also creates a break generationally. We're, we're not going to carry down the law if we have people that ignore their parents. So if the job of the parents is to teach the kids the law and the kids reject it, they're rejecting the law that God gave. That, of course, is not something God wants to have. It's interesting that Jesus uses this same law of honoring parents to react against the Pharisees. So Jesus gets into it with the Pharisees a few times, and he gets into it over things like this. So Jesus quotes both Exodus 20 and this verse from Leviticus 20 in responding to the Pharisees. And I want to read that from Matthew 15. Listen to this. He answered and said to them, why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? So they had just kind of picked on Jesus saying, how come your, your disciples don't wash their hands? Which, of course, right now we should all be washing our hands. But they attacked him and said, how come your disciples aren't washing their hands? They're, they're transgressing the law. And Jesus says, well, why do you transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and mother, and who, in he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. He's quoting Exodus and Leviticus. But you say, whoever says to his father and mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift from God, then he need not honor his father and mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God to no effect by your tradition. You've created a bunch of traditions that allow you to not take care of your parents in their old age. You Pharisees. I love Jesus. He just does it. And then in verse 7 of Matthew 15, he just goes ahead and says, hypocrites. So in case they didn't get the message, Jesus tells them they're hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy about you saying these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. And we saw from last chapter, it was the heart part that God was asking his people, if you're holy and consecrated, you should in your heart want to do these things. And in vain they worship me, teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men. <laughs> and his disciples come up to him afterwards and go, do you know that really ticked them off? And Jesus is like, yeah, I'm pretty sure that that's what happened there. The law doesn't save anyone, but it does say where the boundaries are. So a, a simple example of this is that if you see a nice concrete area and you want to go skateboarding, there's nothing morally wrong about going skateboarding in that area. But as soon as the place that owns it puts up a sign that says no skateboarding, then if you skateboard in that area, you're trespassing. Because people have said, no, don't do this. So there might be people who think there's not anything morally wrong about taking their parents lightly, but God has put up a sign saying, don't do that. Treat your parents with respect and honor to whatever degree you can, right? Up until your parents asking you to do something immoral, and then that's a different kind of thing. But this isn't that situation. Um, verse 10, the man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. So there are things in a civic society that will destroy the society. And everybody having sex with everybody else becomes a, a soap opera. And soap operas aren't good for societies. They're good for TV, but they're not good for real life. And it brings some consequences. The first is the most comp the common here, the man who commits adultery with another man's wife. It has the severest of consequences because this adultery thing just happens in societies, right? And it has a, a harsh consequence that goes with it in the hopes that people don't do it. So we should expect then throughout the rest of the Old Testament, lots of people getting killed for this. But that's not the case. 
In fact, when we see these situations, we see more grace and forgiveness in the Old Testament than we see this law actually getting carried out. For instance, David and Bathsheba, he had sex with another man's wife. You'd think David should just get killed for that because that's the law. And why did David get a pass? Why did he not get killed for this? In part, he asked for forgiveness and he has a repentant heart. So he's not blatantly doing this and then saying that what he's doing is okay. He actually turns and, and apologizes for it. The prophet calls him out on it. He tries to hide it at first, but he repents. And that repentance is part of what gets David forgiveness. Romans 4 says that the faith gets brought in or, or is the thing that brings righteousness. It is the thing that accounts for one's righteousness. So even when there are actions that are against the law, the forgiveness is also there, and there is atonement that can come when there's repentance. So both are still held responsible, but God does the responsibility holding in David's case. So there is a punishment that comes with it. Um, this is a point, then, that the Pharisees try to corner Jesus on, too. And here we can read the law for ourselves. John 8, 3. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought him a woman that was caught in adultery, and they set her in, in the midst and said to him, teacher, which is mockery, because they they, he is not their teacher. So they're using a word that is definitely um, not true. Teacher, this woman was caught in the adultery, the very act of it. Now Moses in the law commanded that us that, that such should be stoned. What do you say? Okay, we caught this woman and she's committing adultery. The law says she should be stoned. What do you, what do you say to that, Jesus? And you know this story. This they said, testing him, that they might have something to accuse him because they wanted to go after him. Jesus stooped down and he wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So he pretends he doesn't hear him. Perhaps he was writing out that if we read this law carefully, <laughs> it says the man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer in the adulteress should be put to death. So there are three prepositional phrases there. In the first two, only he is mentioned. Maybe, and this is there's a lot of theories about what Jesus is writing in the sand while he does this, but perhaps he's writing two words, he who, he who commits adultery. If she was caught in the act, who was she caught with and where's the guy? So Jesus is writing in the sand, and he's wondering, maybe, where's the person and where is he not responsible? So when they continued asking him, hey, Jesus, pay attention, he raised himself up and he said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a first stone. And I think that's interesting. He kind of quotes this verse when he starts his sentence with he who. He who is without sin among you, let him throw the first stone. Again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. What's he writing? Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone. And the woman standing in the midst, when Jesus raised himself up, saw no one but the woman, and he said to her, he probably said to her, woman, I'm going to stone you because I'm the only one here that's not guilty. Right? The law says you shouldn't do this. Why did you commit adultery? He doesn't do that at all. He says, woman, where are those that accuse you? Has no one condemned you? She said, no, Lord, not one. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. The point of the law isn't to punish everyone. 
it's to set the boundaries so we know when a trespass has happened. And when we see the law throughout the Bible being questioned or being brought into an actual real situation, we don't often see the death penalty happen. And that's the interesting thing about the word of God. Even though there's rules and they are harsh and they are to be maintained and they do get maintained throughout, his, throughout the history of the Jewish people, when we see them actually in practice in the word of God, oftentimes it's mercy that comes through. And God himself, in the, in, as Jesus, said, I'm not going to condemn you. So if there's no one to condemn someone, nothing happens. More likely, of course, when it comes to writing in the sand, Jesus could be reminding them that gossip about someone doesn't warrant killing them. Deuteronomy 17, 6, 7. Only witnesses are allowed to cast the first stone. So he could have been writing out Deut Deuteronomy in the sand. And I'll read you that verse. Deuteronomy 16, verse 6, 17, verse 6. At the mouth of two witnesses or three witnesses shall he that is worthy of death be put to death. But at the mouth of one witness, he shall not be put to death. The hands of the witnesses shall be first. Again, we see he there again and again and again. So when he says, he who is without sin casts the first stone, he's looking for two or three witnesses, and there aren't two or three witnesses. In other words, if they've heard gossip about this woman and they haven't seen it for themselves, then they're putting their life on their line when they witness because you can't bar false witness either. That's another one of the rules. So Jesus is holding them to the law because he knows the law. And the law actually has built into it tools where people can't get stoned because of gossip or because of one witness. So even what initially looks extremely harsh, when you practice or apply all of the legal codes, there are restrictions on those legal codes. There's rarely two plus witnesses to a sexual act. So it's pretty rare that you're going to ever have this situation. So if it's so rarely executed, it still sets an ideal or a standard as to what's expected behavior in God's eyes. And God sees everything. And for a lot of these laws, God says, I will do this. God's also watching for false witnesses. So if you're going to bear false witness against someone, then you should be ready to go. So if you're guiltless, then you're ready to throw stones. But if you've got guilt in your life or you haven't seen something, you shouldn't. So there's a harsh law here, but the harsh law makes equally wonderful grace when it's forgiven. Because if what I deserve is death, but I don't get it, that shows grace from whoever gave it to me. It's hard to forgive infractions when there isn't repentance. So when people brashly say, I'm going to do what's against God's will and I don't care what you think, that creates a situation where repentance isn't at the core of the situation. And if the person's unrepentant, that's when these punishments will get executed. It's just a matter of when they get executed. On that thought, I want to read verse 51, or at least a part of it. You know, I mentioned David and Bathsheba. And I know I'm going off this law a little bit, but this idea of having sex outside of marriage, when David's forgiven or he's not killed, even though he deserves death, he knows he's not going to get death, and he accepts that forgiveness after his repentance, he writes a song, and he sits down, and, and we believe the song he wrote was Psalm 51, which reads, and I'm starting at verse 14, Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you don't desire sacrifice or else I would give it. 
You don't delight in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, and these, O God, you will not despise. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offerings and whole burnt offering. So it's not just a legal relationship, and I think that's what David figured out. It's about this personal relationship with God that we saw was expected of people, that people love the law. Why? Because God is good. Now there's a review of chapter 18, and it's just kind of going through and repeating some of these things. In 18, it's wrong to do. Here it's wrong to do, and here's the consequence when they do it. Verse 11, the man who lies with his father's wife has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. If a man lies with his daughter-in-law, both of them shall be put to death. They've committed perversion. Their blood is upon them. It's interesting how in some God cases, God makes it very clear who's responsible for this. So when they do these things, knowing it's wrong, they're doing it to defy God because they know they shouldn't do it. So they make choices, and there's a consequence. Their blood is on them. They have caused this to happen. I remember when we had to spank the kids when they were young. We always really wanted to make it clear and just say, I'm really sorry that we have to spank you right now. And we let them think about it for a while. And we would say, sorry, you know, I, I wish you would listen and not touch the outlet, right? And don't do these things. And when you do these things, it makes it so we have to spank you. We have to let you know that this is not the right path to take. And the kids would be like, okay. And we'd say, are you ready? I'm ready. And it, we, we would tap them. It wasn't like a real spanking. But the buildup to it, the guilt and the conscience that built up to it is they did something they knew we had told them not to do. And it, for those of you that are young and you are going to have parents and the kids in the future, kids will do this. They are little evil people. And they will do what they want to do. And you have to like show them this is the wrong thing. And, and, and you, I, we told you to do it, not to do it. You did it. There's going to be a consequence. So, and then we would give them hugs as long as they wanted them after the spanking was over. God does that with David. He says, I will come as close to you as you need to me because I, what I want is your broken heart. What I want is that spirit that knows that you've tried and you've broken the law and now you're repenting. So there's more review going on in chapter, more review of chapter 18. If a man lies with a male as he lies with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. They're, they knew they're not supposed to do it, and they're doing it. If a man marries a woman and her mother, it's wickedness. They shall be burned with fire. Both he and they, that there be, may be no wickedness among you. And that gives us the idea of God really wants a nation of people that are living under his law. Verse 15, if a man mates with an animal, he shall surely be put to death, and you shall kill the animal. If the woman approaches any animal and mates with it, you shall kill the woman and the animal, and they shall surely be put to death. Their blood is on them. They know this is wrong. They shouldn't do it. They may be tempted to do it, but they shouldn't actually do it. Uh, and in that sort of idea, God puts an emphasis and repeats himself. And when the Bible repeats itself, we may want to listen. So when there's a repetition around this idea of sexual purity, God puts it in there and he says it's clear that we should follow it. God puts similar weight to all of these things. I would say, if anything, the, the greatest weight so far has gone to the Moloch worship at the very beginning of the chapter. But there's lots of acts here that would normally be private. So in order for them to become a civic issue, they'd have to be publicly on display. People would have to be bragging about these things for two, three witnesses to be there, or they're doing it in public. 
right? Otherwise, these things wouldn't be witnessed by other people and there wouldn't be consequences. So these private acts have somehow or another become part of the public discourse. The idea of burned with fire, um, there's no real example of this anywhere else in the Old Testament. This is, this is one of those laws that's here and it's something that you shouldn't do, um, but it doesn't really happen anywhere in the Bible, so we don't see an example of it like we do with adultery. So putting the law there and having the idea of either getting branded or actually burnt in some way, or you know, incinerated somehow, uh, seems to have uh, made it so we don't have examples of these in the Bible. So it ensures that there won't be wickedness out in the public civic life. It's a harsh discouragement to doing these things. So first you have to say something's wrong in order for conscience to activate, in order for laws to be triggered, in order for grace or mercy to even happen. So the point here isn't that you're running around trying to find all these infractions. The point is that you have a society where these things aren't there. It's interesting how people who aren't believers or how people who don't want to follow God use any one of these things to just attack believers. So you say, I'm a believer or I'm a Christian, and they say, oh, so you hate this or you don't allow this or you'll never do this. Um, and it's so quick to say that this is hatred because it's here in Leviticus. But again, we don't see a lot of examples where the punishment's actually carried out because the whole point of the Bible is that there's grace and there's mercy and there's forgiveness for those that have a repentant heart. It's only those that want to defy these laws that God has an issue with. It's interesting how we see that Christians today often have to defend themselves that what we're really all about is love because people instantly want to go to these topics and say, oh, so you hate so-and-so. You're like, no, we don't hate so-and-so. We're living in a way that's holy, and we've chosen that for our own lives. And we love people, and there's no expectation on other people. We're not here to judge others. God will do that. But we are here to say this is what God says is right, this is what God says is wrong, and we have been redeemed, and we've been forgiven, and we feel blessed by that. Verse 17, we continue with this kind of list of things that we shouldn't do. If a man takes his sister, his father's daughter, or his mother's daughter, and sees her nakedness, and she sees his nakedness, it's a wicked thing. And they shall be cut off in the sight of the people. He has uncovered his sister's nakedness. Don't do that. And he shall bear his guilt. If a, if a man lies with a woman during her sickness and uncovers her nakedness, he's exposed her flow, and she's uncovered the flow of her blood, and both of them shall be cut off from their people. So these aren't death penalty infractions, but these are just ew kind of things. Don't do this. And you shall uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister, nor of your father's sister, for that would uncover his near kin. They shall bear their guilt. If a man lies with his uncle's wife, he has uncovered his uncle's nakedness. God leaves nothing to the imagination here. They shall bear their sin. They shall die childless. If a man takes his brother's wife, it's an unclean thing. He's uncovered his brother's nakedness. They shall be childless. So these are explosive situations in the family. They seem like they're, whoever's doing them, maybe they seem like they're exciting at the moment, but these things just explode the family. They all have to do with looking at other people's nakedness, which at the light end, at the PG-13 end, that just means, oops, I saw somebody naked. But it's not like walking in on somebody in the bathroom. This is like looking and, and, and absorbing that nakedness or doing that kind of nastiness. At the worst end, the R-rated part of the spectrum, looking at someone's nakedness or or seeing his nakedness has to do with having sex or having sexual relations with somebody. Why do people do this? 
part of it is because the drive for sex is huge in most people's lives. It's a powerful thing that God made us to have that should drive us towards a marriage relationship. And for people that don't have that high sexual drive, then that, Paul says, is kind of good. Maybe you can just live for the Lord. But I thought with all this looking at nakedness stuff through these verses that we have something in our country that's, it, frankly, it's easier to talk about this without a bunch of people in the room, but pornography is becoming one of the greatest sins in our country, in the world. And the internet has just made that explode. So there are, in the United States alone, we believe there's roughly 40 million people that are looking at other people's nakedness online. Of those 40 million, about 9 million of them that we know about are addicted to it. Addicted to the point where the brain releases chemicals that the brain then wants more of and porn becomes the way to release those chemicals to the loss of everything else in their life. So what gets them excited, the dopamine release in the brain, only happens when they're looking at porn online. Of those 9 million addicts, about a third of them lose their job because they're looking at porn while they're working. God isn't pointing out in these, this kind of review list he's giving. He's not pointing out stealing. He's not necessarily even pointing out gambling. He's pointing out looking at other people's nakedness, this sexual drive that people have being this destructive aspect in their life that when it's not done in a healthy relationship, it becomes a disaster and it becomes explosive in people's life. It's one of the most destructive things we have in our life right now. One of the, if you look at the American Addiction Center, when they talk about pornography, there's this cheap, quick high in dopamine when you steal someone else's nakedness, according to the biblical phrase. But here's the bad effects of this. The effects are emotional abandonment, broken relationships, not just male-female relationships, but all relationships, because ooh, and arousal dysfunction, and this gets nasty. You're so used to looking at porn, you can't even get excited about a real human being anymore and an increase in violence and violent behavior. Why violence? Because there's frustration, the lack of the ability to communicate, the, the emotional abandonment and depression things go up and down. It becomes horrible. Porn destroys love in all loving relationships, not just eros relationships, but agape and filial relationships. It wrecks it. So when we look at this idea and we kind of laugh at like what kind of people were these Israelites looking at everybody's nakedness, I think we should turn a look on ourselves culturally. And if this is a thing in our life that's destroying our relationships or healing them. But porn destroys love. And it's something that's heartbreaking when people we love start to get addicted to those things. And we need to basically help them not be in there. But in order to stop doing something you're addicted to, you have to turn to the Lord and pray. Lord, take away the desire. Make it so I don't even want these things anymore. What's interesting here is this childless element. I don't know if you noticed that, but there's two places in these verses where it says that they'll be childless. That's interesting because that's not a judgment that humans can carry out. It's only a judgment that God would be able to carry out on these people. So he would have to hand, have a hand in ensuring that pregnancies don't happen in these situations. Is it just... It's just that if you disregard the safety and the sanctity of a family so much, it's just that you don't get a family. And that's a horrible situation, and it's sometimes twisted people into thinking that people that are childless are somehow in sin. That is not what this says. 
It simply says that those people are going to be childless because God's not going to let them have kids. He's not going to bring children into this horrible situation. But it doesn't say that when people are childless that that's connected to sin in either way. It doesn't go the other direction. What a blessing a strong family is. And sometimes God blesses people with that family, and sometimes God doesn't because he has other plans for their lives. And we do see people in the Bible that God has blessed and he has held as cherished, but he's also kept childish for a season because he wants them to be doing other things or he wants to bless them in different ways. So why are we drawn to tragedies in these situations? Why would we even wish for these situations to happen? Why do people do these things that we know are destructive? And the question, the reality is people live in the moment and they live for satisfaction now instead of looking for these long-term benefits that God wants. So these are tough issues, and these are issues, issues that could hit close to home for some of us. These are issues that could cause us to hopefully turn to God and pray to God and give us peace about these situations, to give us healing in these situations. Verse 22, God gives us an alternative to all this nonsense. You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my judgments and perform them, that the land where I'm bringing you to dwell may not vomit you out. If you do all these things, you're going to have a home, right? Whether or not you agree with not doing these things, maybe you think you should be able to look at your naked uncle. But if you don't do it, then God's going to give you peace in your home. The relationships you do have will be healthy. The family he does give you will be one of love and peace and grace. And he can bless you in that kind of way. He can let you be at home and at peace. Verse 23, you shall not walk in the statutes of the nation which I am casting out before you, for they commit all of these things, and therefore I abhor them. He's talking about the Canaanites. You're not going to be like the Canaanites. You're not going to live like the world that I'm sending you out into. Be different. If you're going to go there, don't be part of it. God sets this expectation that he'll build the nation and give the land, and he expects that they will be holy when he does it. But I've said to you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the people. Therefore, you shall, you shall therefore distinguish between clean animals and unclean, between clean birds and unclean birds and clean. You shall not make yourselves abominable by beast or bird or by any living thing that creeps on the ground, which I have separated from you as unclean, and you shall be holy to me, for I am the Lord, for I, the Lord, am holy, and I have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Do you get a sense that we're coming all the way back to these, like, chapter 11 with the food stuff? We're seeing this huge review here where God's saying, I want you to be different and separate. I want you to live holy. To be holy is to be more like God, and to be, ho to be holy to God is not the same as being holy. It's the atonement that covers us and makes us holy. Our holiness is never our own doing. We can't do all these things and keep all these statutes perfectly. It's, it's the chapter on atonement that makes it so God can make us holy and clean. So we have a path to redemption. For the most possible people, we have a path for Israel to exist as a nation with the most possible benefit to the most possible people. And he's going to preserve people and he's going to, when there's people that are just kind of sick and in defiance against God, he wants them removed from this kind of nation that he's trying to create. 
We, re we come back to this idea of mediums in verse 27. We see repetition here. A man or a woman who is a medium or who has familiar spirits shall surely be put to death. They shall stone them with stones. Their blood shall be atoned them. So is this the same as verse 6? No. Verse 6 was for folks that went to mediums and for familiars. Verse 27 is for the mediums and the familiars themselves. And a person who turns to mediums and familiar spirits to prostitute with himself with them, I will set my face against that person and cut them off for his people. It's important to see this as a legal code because God carries it out. When Jesus encounters, I'm going to give you another example of this. When Jesus encounters the demon-possessed person, he casts the demon out. As an individual, Jesus didn't stone him. And it wasn't something that as an individual Jesus was supposed to do. Civic law says to stone the people. You need to get two or three witnesses. It needs to be a community thing. You need to agree that this person's in defiance. They have a chance to repent. They choose not to. And you cut them off from the people. But Jesus also doesn't back away from the truth of the crime of this person having let spirits in. He never calls sin okay. Not once does Jesus say it's okay to sin or we're going to tolerate this kind of sin in our community. He just doesn't do it. But he also never pushes away the sinner. And we as Christians, that is so hard for us to get our head around. It's why we look to Jesus as our example. Because how do you, in truth, say something is sin, but then welcome the person who's doing it to be inviting to that person? It's a lot easier when those people are humble and they repent of their sin. It's a lot harder to love those people when they don't. So in that case, when Jesus runs into people that are prideful and unrepentant, he does push that person away. And he calls them hypocrites, like in the last verse I read. When they're flagrant, prideful, and publicly attacking Jesus, and they're doing it in a hateful way, Jesus calls them out on it. He gives them truth and love, like we talked about in Ephesians. I want to give you an example of this. Matthew 8, 28. This is when Jesus is dealing with the demon-possessed. When Jesus arrives on the other side of the lake in the region of the Gadarenes, Gadarenes, two men were possessed by demons, met him. Hey, Jesus. They lived in a cemetery and were so violent that no one could get through the area. They began screaming at them. Why are you interfering with us, son of God? Have you come here to torture us before God's appointed time? Because in God's appointed time, he will judge. And those demon-possessed people will, they twist the word of God, because it doesn't say torture them, it says to stone them, right? And stoning, in, in if you look at rabbinical rules, stoning was not what we see in the movies, where a bunch of people grab rocks and start throwing them. Stoning was, you'd bring people up, and they had a cliff area in town, and the person would jump off that cliff area, and usually the fall on the stones would kill them. The job of the two, three witnesses then was to follow up at the edge of that cliff, and if the person didn't die from the fall, they were supposed to mercifully throw bigger stones down on top of them to kill them quick. It was supposed to be a quick death. And that's how the Jewish people for hundreds of years carried out what they called a stoning. So they twist it and say, are you here to torture us? There happened to be a large herd of pigs feeding in the distance. So the demons begged, if you cast us out, send us into that herd of pigs. Jesus says, all right, go. And Jesus commanded them. So the demons came out of the men and entered the pigs. And the whole herd plunged down the steep hillside in the lake and drowned in the water. They jumped off the cliff that that town had. So the pigs carried out the punishment for them. The herdsmen fled to the nearby town, having lost all of their um, herd. By the way, this is a herd of pigs. 
and it just occurred to me, they shouldn't be eating pigs. Like those pigs are not clean animals and you shouldn't have herds of them. So I know that the Jewish people maybe were sneaking some bacon here and they shouldn't be. So Jesus kills two birds with one stone or two pigs with one stone? Anyways. The herdsmen fled to the nearby town, telling everyone what happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the entire town came out to meet Jesus, and they begged him to go away and leave them alone. Here's what's crazy. That town should have dealt with these two violent men in their graveyard a long time ago. They weren't carrying out the law that they should have carried out. You had an entire region that people couldn't walk through because it was being terrorized by these two demon-possessed men, violent men. That isn't the kind of nation God wants to have. He wants civically that whole group of people should have dealt with the problem, but instead, in defiance, they want to deal with Jesus and get Jesus out of their town. It's the same town that's eaten bacon. Just like with the adulteress in John 8, those that conflict with Jesus are those that should have dealt with the problem in the first place under the civic law in the right and merciful way, and they didn't do that. Where is that man that is supposed to be here in front of him? So here these people should have been put to death, not cut off in a graveyard, which is a kind of torture to the demon-possessed people too. Who wants to live in a graveyard? There's sickness going on all over in this place. But God has the power to forgive, and he sees the whole situation, and he actually carries out the justice that he needs to. But even the demons are saying there's an appointed time when we're going to see all this stuff get dealt with. So there's laws for married people. If you get married, there's some rules for married people that are coming up. Love comes with these boundaries, or it's not love. If there's God, then you shouldn't be doing these things. Matthew 15, 16. So Jesus said, are you all still without understanding? Do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? For those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, theft, false witness, blasphemies, these things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. This is how God, Jesus wraps it up with the adulterous situation. He says, look, you guys are trying to argue about laws, and the point of the book of Leviticus is not for us to sit and bicker about the laws. It's to understand what's clean and what's unclean, and if we want to stand for purity, then we should try to do it ourselves. If we want to try to accuse other people as the Pharisees were doing, then we need to be ready for Jesus or God to hold us responsible for those things. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says that we're supposed to pray, Lord, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Our job as we become legal experts in in Jewish law in Leviticus, our job is not to use Leviticus to run around and accuse people. Our job is to use Leviticus, if we're running a society, to carry out a civic court. And that alone responds to almost all the critiques of the Old Testament that we find here in Leviticus about how harsh the Old Testament is. Well, the harshness of the Old Testament is not for me as an individual to carry out. And as with Jesus as my model, we don't see Jesus carrying out all of these consequences, even though that's just to do so. Jesus isn't in that civic position of judge where it's his job to do that. And what he shows then in that situation is mercy. Likewise, when we run into situations where we see people doing this, our job is to tell them that it's wrong, that God doesn't like it, but also if they're repentant, to give mercy and forgiveness. Love. Truth and love. 
but it's not love unless that it's not really forgiveness unless we've identified something to be forgiven. So these actions that are being defined in Leviticus create a merciful God because God does forgive all of these things. And they sound horrible, but the only thing that isn't forgivable is blaspheming the Holy Spirit. To reject or be prideful in the face of the guilt or the conscience that the Holy Spirit brings. Say, I'm going to do whatever I want whenever I want to do it. That's really the only unforgivable thing. So when we come to these situations like David with Bathsheba and we're convicted and, and the prophet Nathan comes up and says to David, like, you've done something wrong. Nathan's doing his job in the Levitical priesthood. As a prophet, he's doing his job. He's saying, David, you've done it wrong. But his job at that point isn't to stone David. It's to give David a chance to repent by hearing the law or being reminded of the law and then having a chance to react to that. This is tough because we live in a society where a number of people aren't following the, the code of God. And they're not even attempting to follow the law of God. So when we say, I believe so, that's wrong to do that, we actually have people that don't believe there's anything wrong with doing these things, especially with sexual promiscuity and looking at other people's nakedness. Like there's people that brag about doing those things. We don't live in Israel and we are not an Israelite. So we don't live in a country where that happens. So what God calls us to throughout Leviticus is he calls us to holiness. And that idea of pursuing holiness is the definitive thing that we're called to do when we're not, in, when we're not living in Israel as a Hebrew or a stranger in the land. So we're not under that civic code. We're under a civic code where other things are legal. And looking at other people's nakedness is legal in the United States of America. Adultery is legal in the United States of America. So we live in a country where a lot of these things are legal, and that creates a situation or an opportunity for us to stand out and be holy anyways and to hold ourselves to a standard that's higher than the law. And in that sense, Jesus said to the Pharisees, or he said to his disciples, if your holiness isn't higher than the Pharisees, then you're, you stand at risk of being doomed. And in the same situation, if our holiness isn't higher than the legal codes of our society, then we're, we're on our way to, to being doomed. And that's something that we need to kind of pray about and think about. So that's Leviticus 20. We get some civic codes, and we get to dig into those things. We'll pick up in 21 next week. For now, let's say a word of prayer. Dear Lord, we just thank you for your law. We thank you, Lord, that your law tells us what's right and wrong. And we can then have a conscience about it. Lord, we know that we have, in our hearts, we've breached almost every one of the Ten Commandments. And I just keep coming back to that idea that it's not the idea that we've fallen, Lord, but that what's much more important is that you have risen. And you have been the sacrifice and the propitiation for our sins. And that forgiveness, Lord, covers everything. And the authority behind it is that you resurrected from the dead that you are alive and you conquered death. That's what we deserve, and it didn't quite land on you. So, Lord, we want to, in Christ, we just appeal to you, and we ask for your forgiveness for our sins. And because you are risen, Lord, you have the authority to forgive us our sins and to be letting your sacrifice account and atone for us too. So, Lord, we look forward to that day of atonement. We look forward to that day when we can meet you face to face and we can come before you with boldness. Not a boldness of pride, but a boldness of that we know your promises are true. We're proud of you and what you've done. Lord, we humble ourselves before you. We submit ourselves to your word and help us to just be careful and lover 
share, loving sharers of your word with other people, to not be accusatory, Lord, but help us to just be loving in everything we do. Lord, help our acts and our care for one another be so amazing that people want to know why we're so different and help us to stand out. In the meantime, Lord, help us to just be holy. Help us to have purity and, and help purity to be more exciting than any temptation and that we just choose purity in every one of those situations every day when we're tempted. So bring that into our lives. Help it to be part of who we are and help us to hold each other accountable as your saints. In Jesus' name we pray. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.